The Real Life Lord of the Flies by Rutger Bregman from the book Humankind, A Hopeful History. Our expectations are that teenagers washed ashore on a deserted island would soon turn to barbarity. But what if we are wrong? The story published in 1954 takes place on a deserted island somewhere in the Pacific. A plane has just gone down. The only survivors are some British schoolboys who can't believe their good fortune. It's as if they've just crash-landed in one of their adventure books. Nothing but beach, shells and water for kilometres. And better yet, no grown-ups. On the very first day, the boys institute a democracy of sorts. One boy, Ralph, is elected to be the group's leader. Athletic, charismatic and handsome, he's the golden boy of the bunch. Ralph's game plan is simple. One, have fun. Two, survive. Three, make smoke signals for passing ships. Number one is a success. The others, not so much. Most of the boys are more interested in feasting and frolicking than in tending the fire. Jack the redhead develops a passion for hunting pigs, and as time progresses, he and his friends grow increasingly reckless. When a ship does finally pass in the distance, they've abandoned their post at the fire. You're breaking the rules, Ralph accuses angrily. Jack shrugs. Who cares? The rules are the only thing we've got. When night falls, the boys are gripped by terror, fearful of the beast they believe is lurking the island. In reality, the only beast is inside them. Before long, they've begun painting their faces, casting off their clothes, and they develop overpowering urges to pinch, to kick, to bite. Of all the boys, only one manages to keep a cool head. Piggy, as the others call him because he's pudgier than the rest, has asthma, wears glasses and can't swim. Piggy is the voice of reason to which nobody listens. What are we, he wonders mournfully. Humans? Or animals? Or savages? Weeks pass. Then one day, a British naval officer comes ashore. The island is now a smouldering wasteland. Three of the children, including Piggy, are dead. I should have thought, the officer reproaches them, that a pack of British boys would have been able to put up a better show than that. Ralph, the leader of the once proper and well-behaved band of boys, bursts into tears. Ralph wept for the end of innocence, we read, and for the darkness of man's heart. This story never happened. An English schoolmaster made it up in 1951. Wouldn't it be a good idea, William Golding asked his wife one day, to write a story about some boys on an island showing how they would really behave? Golding's book, Lord of the Flies, would ultimately sell tens of millions of copies, be translated into more than 20 languages, and be hailed as one of the classics of the 20th century. In hindsight, the secret to the book's success is clear. Golding had a masterful ability to portray the darkest depths of mankind. Of course, Golding had the zeitgeist of the 1960s on his side, when a new generation was questioning its parents about the atrocities of the Second World War. Had Auschwitz been an anomaly, they wanted to know, or is there a Nazi hiding in each of us? 
I first read Lord of the Flies as a teenager. I remember feeling disillusioned afterwards as I turned it over and over in my mind. But not for a second did I think to doubt Golding's view of human nature. That didn't happen until I picked up the book again years later. When I began delving into the author's life, I learnt what an unhappy individual he'd been. An alcoholic, prone to depression. I have always understood the Nazis, Golding confessed, because I am of that sort by nature. And it was partly out of that sad self-knowledge that he wrote Lord of the Flies. And so I began to wonder, had anyone ever studied what real children would do if they found themselves alone on a deserted island? Thus began my quest for a real-life Lord of the Flies. After extensive online searching, and some trial error and good fortune, author Rutger Bregman stumbled across the story of six Tongan castaways, schoolboys who had been rescued by an Australian sea captain, Peter Warner, after being marooned on the island of Atar for more than a year. Warner, the son of businessman and politician Sir Arthur Warner, one of the richest and most powerful men in Australia in his day, ran away at the age of 17 in search of adventure, spending several years sailing the seven seas. He eventually returned to the family fold to work for his father, but the sea still beckoned. He visited Tonga from Tasmania, where he owned a fishing fleet, in the winter of 1966 in the hopes of trapping lobster in Tongan waters, but was refused permission by King Taufa Aho to Po. It was while heading back to Tasmania that Warner stumbled upon the minuscule island of Atar and spied burnt patches on the green cliffs. Curious about the evidence of fire, Captain Warner drew closer to investigate and was astonished to see a wild-looking naked boy, followed by others, all screaming at the top of their lungs. He was even more taken aback when the boys spoke to him in perfect English and told him of their incredible tale. To help recount the tale, Captain Peter Warner introduced the author to one of the boys, Mano Total, who now lives a couple of hours from Warner just north of Brisbane. Fifteen years old at the time, and now almost seventy, to this day Mano considers Captain Peter Warner one of his closest friends. The real Lord of the Flies, Mano told us, began in June 1965. The protagonists were Sion, Stephen, Colo, David, Luke and himself, six boys, all pupils at St Andrews, a strict Catholic boarding school in Nuku Alofa. The oldest was 16, the youngest 13, and they had one main thing in common. They were bored witless. The teenagers longed for adventure instead of assignments, for life at sea instead of school. So they came up with a plan to escape, to Fiji some 800 kilometres away, or even all the way to New Zealand. Lots of other kids at school knew about it, Mano recalled, but they all thought it was a joke. There was only one obstacle. None of them owned a boat, so they decided to borrow one from Mr Taniela Uhila, a fisherman they all disliked. The boys took little time to prepare for the voyage. Two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts and a small gas burner were all the supplies they packed. It didn't occur to any of them to bring a map, let alone a compass, and none of them was an experienced sailor. 
No one noticed the small craft leaving the harbour that evening. But that night the boys made a grave error. They fell asleep. A few hours later, they awoke to water crashing down over their heads. It was dark. All they could see were foaming waves cresting around them. They hoisted the sail, which the wind promptly tore to shreds. Next to break was the rudder. We drifted for eight days, Mano told me. Without food, without water. The boys tried catching fish. They managed to collect some rainwater in hollowed-out coconut shells and shared it equally between them, each taking a sip in the morning and another in the evening. Then, on the eighth day, they spied a miracle on the horizon. Land. A small island, to be precise. Not a tropical paradise with waving palm trees and sandy beaches, but a hulking mass of rock jutting up more than 300 metres out of the ocean. These days, Atar is considered uninhabitable. The teenagers had a rather different experience. By the time we arrived, Captain Warner wrote in his memoirs, the boys had set up a small commune with food garden, hollowed-out tree trunks to store rainwater, a gymnasium with curious weights, a badminton court, chicken pens and a permanent fire, all from handiwork, an old knife blade and much determination. It was Stephen, later an engineer, who after countless failed attempts managed to produce a spark using two sticks. While the boys in the make-believe Lord of the Flies come to blows over the fire, those in the real-life Lord of the Flies tended their flame so it never went out for more than a year. The kids agreed to work in teams of two, drawing up a strict roster for garden, kitchen and guard duty. Sometimes they quarrelled, but whenever that happened they solved it by imposing a time-out. The squabblers would go to opposite ends of the island to cool their tempers, and after four hours or so, Mano later remembered, we'd bring them back together. Then we'd say, OK, now apologise. That's how we stayed friends. Their days began and ended with song and prayer. Colo fashioned a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood, a coconut shell, and six steel wires salvaged from their wrecked boat, an instrument Warner has kept all these years, and played it to help lift their spirits. And their spirits needed lifting. All summer long it hardly rained, driving the boys frantic with thirst. They tried constructing a raft in order to leave the island, but it fell apart in the crashing surf. Then there was the storm that dropped a tree on their hut. Worst of all, Stephen fell off a cliff and broke his leg. The other boys helped him back up to the top. They set his leg using sticks and leaves. Don't worry, Sion joked. We'll do your work while you lie there like King Talfa Ahal Tupur himself. The boys were finally rescued on Sunday, September 11, 1966. Physically, they were in peak condition. The local doctor later expressed astonishment at their muscled physiques and Stephen's perfectly healed leg. The mood when the boys returned to their families was jubilant. Almost the entire island of Ha'afeva, population 900, had turned out to welcome them home. Warner was proclaimed a national hero. Soon he received a message from King Taufa Ahau Tupo IV himself, inviting the captain for another audience.
Thank you for rescuing six of my subjects, His Royal Highness said. Now, is there anything I can do for you? The captain didn't have to think long. Yes, I would like to trap lobster in these waters and start a business here. This time, the king consented. Warner resigned from his father's company and commissioned a new ship. Then he had the six boys brought over and granted them the thing that had started it all, an opportunity to see the world beyond Tonga. He hired Sion, Stephen, Colo, David, Luke and Mano as the crew of his new fishing boat. The name of the boat? The Atar. This is the real-life Lord of the Flies. Turns out it's a heartwarming story. The stuff of best-selling novels, Broadway plays and blockbuster movies. It's also a story that nobody knows. While the boys of Atar have been consigned to obscurity, William Golding's book is still widely read. The real Lord of the Flies is a story of friendship and loyalty, a story that illustrates how much stronger we are if we can lean on each other. Of course, it's only one story. But if we're going to make Lord of the Flies required reading for millions of teenagers, then let's also tell them about the time real kids found themselves stranded on a deserted island. I used their survival story in our social studies classes, one of the boys' teachers at St Andrews High School in Tonga recalled years later. My students couldn't get enough of it. So what happened to Warner and Mano? If you happen to find yourself on a banana plantation outside Lismore in New South Wales, you may well run into them. Two old men, trading jokes, arms draped around each other's shoulders. Friends for life. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.